Welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Dr. Justin Walker. Justin serves as the Assistant Professor of Old Testament and Christian Ministry in the School of Religion here at Lee University. Prior to Lee, he served in a variety of pastoral roles, including a college pastor, worship pastor, and a teaching pastor at Mount Perrin North Church of God in Marietta, Georgia, that is. Actually, he has a um, Ph.D. in Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament from Emory University, his Master of Theology, and he has a Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. He is a dad. He is um, a husband of one. He is a wonderful, wonderful love professor by any student who knows him. As a matter of fact, when his name comes up, even those who don't know him, I hear good things about this guy named Justin Walker. You're going to enjoy this conversation. We'll be right back. Justin, welcome to Surfcast. Man, we have been trying to get you into the room for weeks. I'm glad we could finally make it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, end of the semester's here. I'm ready for all things to wrap up. So, so my son, your friend, Nick Lamb, says hey. Oh, that's great. I, I miss <laughs> I miss seeing Nick. Yeah, tell him I said hey as well. He, you know, he joined the dad club. He's, he's, not, know, he's not in as far as you are. He hasn't caught up with you yet, but he's in. Yeah, that's exciting. There's no better club to be in than the dad club. You've got, so. Well, I don't know. The papa club is pretty cool. So, uh, <laughs> I got some time before that one. <laughs> Yeah, so. you do have some time, but, uh, you know, um, your dad would say thanks to you, and I'll say thanks to Nick, and, you know, because of, you know, dads like you, we could be papas, and so yeah, that's exciting, it's man. a good life. Yeah. You know, Justin, we met many years ago and, you know, kind of knew each other through some associations. You've been at Lee now. How many years? Is this your second or third year? It's my third year, third yeah. Third year. Okay, so um, big question of the day is, and we're going to talk about kind of pastoral ministry. You spent some time in three different types of areas in pastoral ministry, right? Yes, Yes. Now, talk to me a little bit about the whole idea of kind of pastoral calling. What does it mean when we say, you know, this particular series of Surfcast is designed, you know, specifically anybody that listens to it can, can grab it. But we really want to speak to a minute about the heart of pastoring. What does that mean? Because we talk about senior pastors, we talk about staff pastors, you know, positions, authority, all that kind of stuff. Take us to some uh, understanding of in, in current day what mm -hmm. the value and importance is. Mm -hmm. Um, or are regarding um, the idea of being a pastor? Yeah, so I'm going to speak to my own sense of calling first as a way of getting at that question. So um, my calling was something that was not instantaneous but was progressive. Okay. So uh, unlike former generations, that I think the common tale is always one of, you know, God kind of spoke to me in that place, that moment, and I knew right then I was going to be a pastor. Uh, mine was kind of something that I I often say I backed into rather than walked into. Hmm. Um, so I was always intrigued by intellectual study, by things of scripture and theology. And my calling came as I found great joy in doing it. And as I learned more and more about it, I became somebody in the room that people would ask questions of. And then I found kind of the pleasure of God in sharing what I had learned hmm. uh, from the pulpit or in the classroom. And so pastoral ministry was something that I had an inclination towards, perhaps as, even as a teenager, but never something I claimed until I found myself as a college pastor or hmm. perhaps even before that as a chaplain for a Greek club, Oops, long, yeah, something like yeah. that, right? Little things. Uh, but in that regard, right, so calling for me then, uh, I often differentiate, and many people do, between primary and secondary calling. Primary calling, just love of God and neighbor. Um, secondary calling can be seasonal in various capacities. And so um, 
that secondary calling for me has taken various forms, a various staff pastor, it's now as a professor, but it still hasn't taken away from the primary calling, which is merely love God, love people. And I find great comfort in that because a lot of vocational anxiety that I myself have experienced can often hinder a sense of calling. What am I supposed to, am I on the path of God's will? Have I missed it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my students often feel this great anxiety. What's my major supposed to be? And they have this sense that if they don't know, that they're somehow deficient, right? And so I think this differentiation between no matter what I do, I'm loving God, I'm loving people, but there are also these specific steps to take, and God will reveal those when necessary. Mm -hmm. So my calling has been one discerned uh, continuously uh, rather than instantaneously. I really appreciate you saying that, and I think that's very important for people. Mine's a similar story. You know, I, uh, I felt the call to ministry when I was a kid, but my dad was a pastor, really didn't want any association with it, didn't mm -hmm. want to have anything to do with it, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Um, it left, and then I, uh, it didn't leave, I left, I went to the Marine Corps, you know, and so, but then, but then I understand what you're saying, so, so unpack for us, let's, let's talk about that person who feels that, in your frame, they would be in a secondary calling, but that season seems to be elongated, right, so mm -hmm. the point is, a lot of people, you know, think that they're a pastor for life, right, right. this is something, yeah. and they're 40 years into this now, mm -hmm. and there's, no way for them to do anything different. Talk a little bit about the value of sticking with it once you find what God might be um, developing in your life. Yeah, sticking with it. So that's um, the value of sticking with a calling is such that it's really being obedient, which goes back to primary calling, that if I have not been called elsewhere, right. then there's a sense that I must stay where I am, Good. right? So all the way back to even something as early as David, who's anointed king as a young man, but doesn't accede to the throne until much later, he's forced to remain a shepherd and remain a musician in, in Saul's court until the time comes for the door to open for him to do something else. And perhaps that door doesn't open or mm. opens altogether later. God is often a God of surprising door openings, uh, often inconvenient door openings as well. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, therefore, to do something else, to step outside of that secondary calling that I originally received, if I have no other secondary calling to which I'm going, is an act of disobedience in some mm -hmm. capacity, which is negative. Um, and it's also trusting that God often works much more effectively in the long term than the short term. Mm -hmm. So, so much of contemporary pastoral ministry, especially under young ministers, speaking of even students, is this sense of I'm, I'm moving from position to position until I get to where I'm going, which yeah. is often some sense of an arena or you know some massive sure. church, something big and huge, and um, I'm just trying to make my way there. Um, but there's uh, there's tremendous value in. Uh, investing right where I am at the local place that God has called me to and the people that God has called me to because God does not just long-term work in a lifetime but intergenerational work that God is up to. And so 40 years, 50 years in the same position is incredibly admirable. Um, Eugene Peterson has once said that, you know, of the fivefold ministry, we have all kinds of people that want to be teachers and prophets, evangelists, etc. He said, but we have few people in the, in the modern age who feel called or want to be pastors. We need more pastors in the world. And pastors implies kind of longevity that implies notwithstanding when God calls us elsewhere, of course, but it implies a sense of stubborn persistence with the people that God models, of course, and God's stubborn persistence, especially with Israel as an Old Testament scholar speaking. Um, but that stubborn persistence is itself an act of faithfulness that is fulfilling primary and secondary calling together. Um, Walk us through a little bit on the process of what did it look like when you first discovered that you were backing into the secondary calling, this thing, you know, which went from being a pastor, you know, a staff pastor to now a college professor, right? So what, what, what does that look like? And 
how can people begin to identify when they might be backing into a calling that um, yeah. could define where they need to, to plant for a while? Yeah, backing into that calling was something that was discerned. Uh, I kind of woke up and realized that I was a pastor. Um, and in t- <laughs> Some people wake up and decide they're going to quit pastoring, Justin. Come on, and now I woke, you woke up and decided well, I mean, you're going to pastor. I felt called, yeah, I felt called to where we, the, the initial position we accepted as a college pastor at Mount Paranoid. I felt called to that when the, when the position was offered. I wasn't discerning that or yearning for that. It just arrived, and I was thankful for it. But um, waking up to that, to that uh, reality... Yeah, so discerning that is a part of feeling the joy of the Lord as I accomplished it, one. And two, the kind of terrifying prospect that I cannot do it without the help of the Spirit. Mm. Um, that Those two things together, right, radical God dependence coupled with the radical fulfillment that the, that the task itself brought was confirmation and also communal confirmation. Hey, when you preach, um, I feel things or I hear things or I learn things. And mm. those kinds of things are, you know, in, in enticing and, and, of course, encouraging. But so, so we could talk about the various ways that one feels confirmation of secondary calling. But those, for me, for, were primary, the sense that I was doing what I was gifted at doing, and that it had tremendous impact and import for the body, um, that it wasn't just about my own kind of self-aggrandizement or uh, self-actualization project, but it was instead about uh, this little group of kind of ragtag island of misfit toys college students that I had the opportunity to kind of uh, both succeed and fail with on many mm-hmm. occasions. But it was that, and it, that combination of both terror and excitement and mm-hmm. fulfillment that kind of f- confirmed together uh, that this was something that I was, as I was backing into it, was something I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's obvious here at Lee when, when people take your class, I mean, they, they love it, right? So it's it's uh, good job security for you, you know. But, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's also the reality that, that you're connecting, you know, that you're really, you said a moment ago, you said, you know, people started asking you questions, which obviously we know caused you to need to learn more so that you would be able to teach better or teach mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Realizing that not every uh, that students every student you know has to at some point come through the school of religion here and take a an Old Testament a New Testament course in so many of those students you know will, will sit in your classroom, which will never be pastors they will never enter a ministry minded kind of a field right, um, you know what are some of the things that college students need to know today about their primary calling of relationship you know with the Creator and what does it mean to come into that but then also to be reflection versus refraction in a world of chaos, right? So mm-hmm. what's a way that you could speak to, to the general population of students to say, you might not be called to be a quote-unquote pastor, mm-hmm. a college pastor, a worship pastor, or working in a local church. Man, you're still called to be yeah. salt and light. Why is it so important that they understand that now? And how can we drill that down so they can understand decisions made now will really affect Outcomes way down the road. Yeah. So even though Does that they, makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense. So even though they may not be may not feel called to be pastor or minister, nevertheless, First Peter three, I mean First Peter uh, two rather would call them uh, holy priesthood, mm-hmm. right? So they are priests, yeah. whether they are in the nursing field or uh, selling insurance or whatever mm-hmm. they whatever it is that they end up doing in the various careers that they pursue. That they are priests, and therefore their their primary task they can put it on the resume. I'm a priest. There you go. I like that. Uh, and so that therefore as priests. They have multiple responsibilities, including intercession and these kinds of things for their world. But part of that intercession and ministry is, of course, uh, using whatever skills they have and careers they have unto the service of God and neighbor. So before they are their major, uh, they are, of course, uh, called to be priests wherever they are found. And disabusing students of the notion that their worth is somehow coupled with their vocational success. 
Hmm. Even as they have been told by their pastors and parents that God loves you no matter what, they have this sense that I am here at college to get a job and to be successful. And that fundamentally places them at odds with their primary calling that they are beloved before they set foot on the Lee campus or any campus or whatever the case might be. And so getting students back in touch with the primary sense of belovedness, and I think it's easy in ministry to lose that primary sense of belovedness, given that often in ministry things are statistically tracked. We had this many this week, this many last week, this many this time, that last year, budget, all these kinds of things. Everything becomes quantified such that it's so easy to wrap one's identity around the success of a given mm-hmm. thing, including the ministry. And I think uh, the gospel to these students and to anyone is the calling to lay down my own notions of success and my own self-actualization narrative that I might simply participate in the present tense, wherever I am found on this particular day, uh, to love the ones God has given me to love mm-hmm. and to do everything I can to be obedient in this hour, knowing mm-hmm. that I'm not even guaranteed the next. And if I can get students in touch with that radical kind of existential present tense awareness, I think that is a way of disabusing them again of notions that will leave them burnt out and unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. So you finally reach the career. Are you happy? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not even just are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you? Yeah. And so I think and uh, teaching the Old Testament is to get them in touch with that really weird God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just the God that's there to kind of help them have a better Saturday, mm-hmm. not just a God that's just some kind of walking abstract notion of love, but this kind of personal, difficult, odd, particular God, the God mm-hmm. of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ. And I think to get them to that text is to put them in touch with that primary narrative that they were chosen before uh, they chose what to do with their mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and their life. So. Let, let's talk about um, biblical interpretation for just a minute, right? So realizing that, I mean, you know, no matter who's reading the Bible, they read it through, you know, a variety of lens. Right, so they may read it through the lens of pain. They may read it through the lens of celebration. They may read it through the lens of loss. They may read it through the lens of, you know, someone else's expectation of them. Mm-hmm. Right, um, give us a mini lecture. Uh, you know, a, a quick kind of concept on how the general, how a person should approach the Bible to mm-hmm. be able to understand what really God might be saying to them in the culture in which they exist. Yeah, yeah. I think it's helpful to differentiate in Bible reading between two habits of Bible reading. There's a difference between study and meditation. So um, study asks, what does the text mean? Study is analytical, it's intellectual. It's not asking to apply the text, it's not asking, what does this mean for my first cousin who's sick? It's just asking, what does Jeremiah mean when he speaks these words in chapter 12? Um, It's a purely analytic intellectual task. This is different from, but not totally separate from, the task of meditation, which is to use the text, which is what we're most often used to in quiet time and prayer, right? But this is to use the text as a kind of, not use it, but encounter the text as interface or means of communion with God. That asks not what does the text mean solely, but what does the text mean for me, to Mm -hmm. me. So this is to read Psalm 23 and to hear um, the words of God being the shepherd in the midst of difficult circumstances, right? This is to take the one verse out and chew on it, right? Uh, the, the, The medieval tradition, the monastic tradition would call for chewing upon the text to see what God would have to say to me in this particular moment. Study can help inform meditation, but in many respects, meditation can suspend original meaning 
for the mm-hmm. sake of whatever God's saying to me right now in this moment. Uh, study, however, is not going to suspend original meaning. And I think it's important that Christians do both tasks, right? So Bonhoeffer and his work in Life Together, he recommends both. Recommends, one, starting the day with meditation, 10 to 12 verses in the morning of 30 minutes of silence before God. This is to ask what the text means to me. But then, in corporate worship, to hear readings from the Old and New Testament, longer passages that help frame for me the broader narrative of God's working in Scripture to ensure that I know who Jeremiah is, and I'm not just knowing one verse from 52 chapters. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the only sure. verse we often know, right? Uh, but not knowing just one verse, but knowing all 52 chapters. And so I think the Christian often, well, I should say Christians that I encounter, often good decently at the meditation component. They read the Bible to figure out what does God say to me but often not as well in the broader narrative structure of Scripture, all 66 books, general knowledge, because it's the general knowledge that ensures that I'm not creating God in my own image, mm-hmm. but I'm serving the, the true and living God, um, which is often uh, contra to the God that I want to have. Mm-hmm. So study ensures that I'm encountering the God that is and not the God I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, meditation ensures that that God that is is not separate from me, but is speaking to me as I am and where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that that God is radically personal as that God is also transcendent. And so I think in the contemporary age when, in which all scripture is like memeable, right? It's, I've got the one verse from Instagram. I'm thankful for that verse. But if that's my kind of only food, if meditation is my only food, then I think I'm lacking the broader picture that it helps me to ensure that I'm living into the broader narrative of God and God's people. Mm-hmm. You know, for the clarity and the sake of our folks who are listening today, I want to kind of reiterate something that you said because you bookended the day. Yeah. You uh-huh. know, you talked about in the morning, 10 to 12 verses, 30 minutes, and then spend back in the afternoon or the evening at some point, go back and revisit the larger context. Um, I think a lot of folks feel accomplished if they just hit one of those two bookends, (laughs) you know, or better yet, if they actually happen to see their Instagram, you know, scripture, or if they actually take time to read that Instagram scripture out loud, right? So for the person who you got great ideas, and this is great insight, you know, for those of us who are, um, you know, experienced in our devotion to God. Mm-hmm. But for those who are just starting, mm-hmm. what's some benchmarks, some ways that they could look forward to? Um, I think the real thing I'm trying to drive to, Justin, is too often people condemn themselves mm-hmm. long before you or I ever judge them when we really aren't judging them mm-hmm. for starters. Mm-hmm. They condemn themselves. Speak to somebody to let them understand how can they, what's some benchmarks that they can do to develop to that place where, and you said it a while ago, where the scripture becomes appealing to them and it's an appetite Mm -hmm. versus a necessary discipline. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think um, a couple things are here. One, the self-condemnation already goes back to primary and secondary calling. I assume that I must perform to please God. If I can rest in the fact that I'm already beloved, then I haven't failed at all, right? I'm just living into the love that already exists. So, um, and the scriptures are the ones that remind me that I am primarily beloved. This is the kind of feedback loop of scripture reading and a beloved identity. But I think, yeah, that self-condemnation is real. Richard Foster has this wonderful line though. He says that in the spiritual disciplines, we are always beginners, always. Even the expert, even the one that's been reading scripture for 60 years and has perhaps the entire thing memorized, still a beginner. Beginners are always welcome. 
And I think Jesus asks us or requires or says that we must have faith like a child. Right? So faith like a child, we often assume to be trust of God, these kinds of things. I think that's real and true. But also children are perpetual and inevitable beginners mm -hmm. at everything. Right? I'm watching my own two kids, nine and six, learn to play baseball and play the piano and things. And they're constantly making mistakes. right? But they don't care because mm -hmm. they're nine and six. And as we become adults, there's this sense that I must have my act together. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't like to be beginners at anything because it makes us foolish and frustrated. Beginnings are difficult. And so if I don't already have spiritual disciplines in place, there's no other way to learn them than to do them or mm -hmm. to try them. Henry Nouwen has this great line in which he says, I thought, I thought getting older would bring me closer to Jesus. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. He just, you know, I remember being a kid watching my grandmother read her Bible and thinking, oh, well, when I, when I, I guess when I turn 30 or 40, I'll, I'll just that. start reading. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there are certain things that bring us to our knees, right? There are certain experiences or realities that lead us to open the text. So I think this is where we trust Bible reading programs. This is where we, and, and I would even encourage, I think devotions are good. They're wonderful. Even reading of any text is good. Instagram meme, good. But I think I would, I would want to remove the interface of the devotion writer Mm -hmm. of Pastor Y or Pastor X um, to where it's just me in the text. And just like learning any new thing, it's going to take time. But the desire follows, right? Um, yeah, so I, Psalm 1 talks about being deeply rooted people. Um, that deep rootedness comes from the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. His delight is in the Lord, or is in the law of the Lord, which that delight comes, it's an acquired taste. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we don't do Bible reading is because it's not enjoyable to do Bible reading. Yeah. The reason we watch Netflix is because Netflix is inherently <laughs> enjoyable, right? So uh, if Bible reading were easy, we would already be doing yeah. it. But all things worth doing in life are already uphill. Mm -hmm. uh, so... There's no other way than to set the alarm clock and do it, or uh, at the very end of the day to turn off the television and start. And I would say there's no wrong where to wrong place to start, mm -hmm. but I would encourage firm discipline. I use the daily office in the Anglican tradition. Uh, my friend tipped me off to it. There's an app for it, so it's really easy. The prayers are there, the texts are there, reading through the Bible in two years. There's multiple programs we could talk about doing, but there is no better way to do it than just to start mm -hmm. and recognizing that if I miss on a Tuesday morning because the kids are crazy and I don't feel well that God isn't condemning me mm -hmm. but rather it's, in, it's not about performing for God it's instead about being with God all of life with God is about being with God um, and even as our minds get distracted as we read the text uh, Bonhoeffer says that if we're reading the Bible and praying and our minds get distracted, we start thinking about the day. He says, don't get mad at your mind. It's prone to wander. Mm -hmm. He said, just bring those things you're thinking about into the prayer. So all of a sudden you're thinking about your third cousin. Well, pray for the third cousin. Yeah. Right? Uh, and another medieval scholar says that whenever our minds wander uh, and they make their way back, God is always like the prodigal father who mm -hmm. welcomes our minds back home. He's excited every time we come back. And so I think we must move it away from, did I read enough? Did I read rightly? Did I read what I was supposed to read? And instead say, the Spirit is doing the work as I am willing to place myself before mm -hmm. the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Did I fall asleep in it? That's okay. Did I get bored? That's okay. Did I read too little, too much? That's okay. God's doing the work. I'm not. I'm just being with God. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, too, is we often get so... Our relationships that we have with our mothers and fathers are those whom we care about the most. Like, I don't leave my wife's presence and I'm, I don't 
like leave her presence and think to myself like was that good like did i say the right thing did i put my arm in the right place you know what i mean it's it's just a being with sure. right and it's, i can totally let my guard down why do we do this with god did mm-hmm. i think the right thoughts did i say the right things mm-hmm. god is just saying would you relax i'm in your and be in my presence and mm-hmm. i think that's back to beloved identity that's what it means to be a follower of jesus christ mm-hmm. getting out of performance mentality and into uh, the discipline of just being with God. You know, one of the things that uh, I think is incredibly important, that theme, you know, that's coming out of this conversation so far is the idea of relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, relationship with God, relationship with others. Mm-hmm. I observed you a couple of days ago. I watched you um, embrace your father and your dad, yeah. you know, and I was like, man, this is really cool because, you know, my sons, I mean, uh, my, my son Nick, you know, he's, he's bigger than I am, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, but man, unashamedly, my three sons and I, at any point we see each other, you know, we'll, we'll embrace each other just like you and your dad did. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful image, what a wonderful visit, visible reminder of the value of relationship. Now, we know not everybody has that kind of relationship with their child or with their parent that they can lovingly embrace one another. But I'm concerned sometimes that maybe our perception of our earthly father limits our perceptions mm-hmm. with our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Speak to that for those folks that don't have good relationships. How can mm-hmm. they find... Man, I don't know, Justin. I kind of feel for a moment the need for people who don't really know God to mm-hmm. find this love with this God that even though their heaven, I mean, their earthly father has rejected them or you know they've been abused by something or whatever the case may be, that Heavenly Father will embrace them mm-hmm. Unash- you know, unashamedly, yeah. anywhere, all the time. Speak hope into people that don't have a tangible relationship here that they can speak good to. How can they find that with one they can't see? Yeah, yeah. When God is likened to a father and we don't have a, a parental figure by which to think of that God in healthy ways, it's one thing to say that God is father. It's another thing. It's, so it's one thing to use our own understandings of fatherhood or motherhood to make sense of God. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to recognize that God sets the standard for what motherhood and fatherhood are originally. And so for the spirit to do that healing work, so that includes the scriptures as we've already talked about, but this is where the community of God is indispensable. The body of Christ. That if, I was once told that if you were to ask Paul, where is Jesus's body? Paul would say, look to your left and right, yeah. right? And this is where the, the physical, tangible expression of the parental concern and stubborn love of God are found in the spiritual mothers and fathers of the church. So um, if, I am, if I'm not a part of the people of God, that's where God begins to rehabilitate the image of who he is in my mind via the love of those who love unconditionally within God's family. Mm-hmm. This is where church as consumer product must die a thousand deaths and churches the people of God gathered by the spirit uh, must find its life uh, because this is much of uh, the image of God that is a false images of God uh, in the minds of others can only be shattered via the love of spiritual mothers and fathers in intergenerational ministry um, that of course we could talk about learning the love of God via the scriptures and the communion of the spirit as it's there uh, but I think that intergenerational component of spiritual mentorship is where God begins to do really deep work of rehabilitating to remind those of us that have had difficult relationships with parents or grandparents or guardians uh, that they are not the last word mm-hmm. and that there is a preceding 
unconditional uh, parental love that yeah. cannot be escaped or, or, or uh, somehow uh, removed. And even if your relationship with, you know, an earthly parent isn't good, you can have a great relationship with your own That's children. That's right. Yeah, you already do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I thought you meant with God. Yeah, you already do with God. But yeah. yeah, with your own children. That's yeah, right. God can children. heal that generational yeah. curse. That's right. Yeah, That's he, right. Can, he can fix that. Yeah. Okay, speak to us. Um, we'll get some fun questions in just a minute. But for those of us that see the world and we realize that evil is, you know, increasing daily, mm-hmm. um, we realize that you know, the, the enemy of, uh, the enemy of light is, you know, ever around us. Right. So we might perceive somebody to be an unbeliever who, you know, might fit that category, which we put them in, but how do you, how do we share the gospel, the good news in an everyday practical form for people around us to want a relationship with this God that you and I have been talking about for the last 25 minutes. Yeah, so uh, evangelism, this isn't solely an evangelism question, but pertains to aspects of evangelism. Evangelism, as I was uh, growing up, was always the kind of go out in the street corner, perform this skit, and see how many responses you can get. And I think there's great beauty and and value to to aspects of evangelism that are that practice. But I'm drawn uh, to, I read recently, Rich Viodas' work, he's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York. He has a, a, a recent book, The Deeply Formed Life, I believe. But he talks about the practice of evangelism as a theology of evangelism that's rooted, of course, in God's presence in the world. So in the midst of a very broken, kind of evil age, if we want to call it that, uh, evangelism is not merely the proclamation of Jesus as Lord in some kind of perfunctory or you must accept, kind of turn or burn, get right or get left kind of thing. Uh, but instead is framed or based upon uh, theology that understands that God is first with the world, Emmanuel, and then God is also for the world. Mm. And so evangelism is more about presence with the world, being with and for the world, Mm -hmm. than it is just about getting words out to get people to make a decision. Um, That that kind of, again, God's presence in Israel and in Christ is a stubborn, abiding, local, particular presence, Mm -hmm. right? It It is Ruth clinging to Naomi. You can't get rid of me. Right? You may even reject me. You may change your own name, but you can't shake me. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, in the church's effort to get the world, if we want to call it, if we want to use those categories, to get the world to make that decision, it simultaneously has often refused the more difficult work of stubborn abiding presence. Um, and I think that local kind of, I may not be the one to, to lead you in the sinner's prayer, as it were, uh, but nevertheless, I am with you and I am for you precisely because God is with you and God is for you. And as God has not given up on you and there are no hopeless cases in a place where Christ is risen and a world where Christ is risen. So also, even if you continue to will your own death, you cannot shake me. And Christ is the one who dies with us, enters into hell with us, according sure, sure. to the Apostles' Creed. So the church, uh, I think I think so many, so many aspects of contemporary local church practice can be an attempt to pastor the world. Um, and, I, you know, online presence and all that kind of stuff, which is so important. Um, but so many of the pastors that I've learned from and been mentored by have affirmed the importance of, of locality, being with these people in this place, this community, learning these issues, et cetera. And so I think uh, sharing the light of God in the dark world uh, is a return to the realization that God often takes a long time to work. And, and that's that forbearance and patience with the world in, a, in an abiding with and an abiding for mm-hmm. that recognizes that I cannot make Jesus arrive for them. Jesus arrives on Jesus's own terms, but I'll do everything I can to prepare the way, mm-hmm. which is, uh, again, I think fundamentally about presence. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, Cliff Schimmel's, I don't know if you remember the name mm-hmm. or not, mm-hmm. but Cliff Schimmel's used to tell the story. He talked about um, donkey work. You know, and he talked about that um, the donkey needed to realize that it wasn't really about him. Mm-hmm. You know, if the donkey thought it was about him, he would have had his favorite parking spot at the, sta- at the stable. You know, <laughs> matter of fact, you know, um, it really was so much not about the donkey that, you know, and he tells that story about, you know, if in the Bible where it says, you know, D- Jesus rode in on a donkey, it would say Jesus thrown from a donkey. <laughs> so, so Cliff kind of talked a little bit about this gospel presentation stuff is what we're doing is donkey work. Mm-hmm. Everything that we're doing is carrying the Christ, right. you know, and the idea, the concept, the imagery of who he is to the world mm-hmm. that they may, you mm-hmm. know, get to know him and get to experience him. Love that direct quote you gave. I think it's from Ezekiel, you know, uh, I am for you. God, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, told his children in, in, in the book of Ezekiel those very words, I am for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm against Gog, but I am mm-hmm for you and man what an encouraging word for folks so let's get some fun questions here for just a minute um let's speak from your intellect for a second let me challenge you to speak from your intellect for a second as if you don't do that already you talk about food and you're talking from your intellect but um let me ask you this a must read and it can be the same book or it can be separate works a must read for someone who is in the calling of pastoral work Mm -hmm. in a local church and then a must-read for this generation of college students um, that it this is something you need to go home and read over your Christmas break. Mm. Yeah, so I think the same book or the same author can speak in both directions. This is not a complicated intellectual work. This is not some scholarly proposal concerning a biblical book. This is a recommendation of a staple in Christian formation, Christian discipleship. Uh, first, the author, Henry Nowen, um, and then, of course, uh, Henry Nowen's work, Life of the Beloved, I yeah. think is a work that uh, everyone could benefit from. I've recommended that book thousands of times. I use it in courses and students at the end of the semester every time. Say, so this is my favorite book, one of the best I've ever read, mm-hmm. um, at getting at primary calling. And then with that, of course, his second book on leadership in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. This kind of radical countercultural understanding of leadership. So I think Henry Nowen, uh, though he is no longer with us, right. uh, continues to speak well beyond this generation. Um, to both parties, both pastors uh, and laity, intellectuals, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a simplicity to his work that is not at the same time simplistic. Mm-hmm. There's nothing too simple. Um, it's, it's, there's a beauty to his simplicity. He had a gift. So. I think there's a term called, uh, great, great recommendations, by the way. I've actually read both of those, mm-hmm. and they're great books. Um, jaywalk, is there a term called jaywalk? Is that something jaywalk, that you yeah. go by? Is that... I notice when you walk across the street with a red light or something like that, but do you go by jaywalk? Is that what students call you around here? Yeah, it's not because of a collection of misdemeanors. Uh, <laughs> it is instead uh, what they called me when I was a student, especially the Upsilon guys called me jaywalk. And then uh, I don't know if a third-person reference did it. I don't know if students started it, but as early as my first semester, I was jaywalk. And yeah. so... Uh, students, some students call me that. Some students are still terrified, right? They, yeah. It's still Dr. Walker. Yeah, they, for sure. If they could add something to it, they would. For sure. Uh, but no, that's, that's, that's the nickname, and uh, I'm happy to carry it. There you go. What do you do for fun? Yeah. Well, right now, so much of our life is tied to our children. Yep. Um, but uh, as of late, uh, playing music. But, you know, I used to be a worship pastor. I miss playing music with a band. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you play? Uh, play guitar mostly. Okay. Um, but we we recently inherited uh, from my grandmother. She wanted me to have her baby grand piano. Nice. And so uh, we didn't have room for it in our Atlanta house. And then when we moved up here, we did we, we made room for it. And uh, my daughter's been learning on it. Nice. And uh, so I've been 
tickling the ivories, as it were. Yeah. Not very well. Um, but music of late. And then, um, yeah, the semester has taken over for the past six months. I play golf poorly, um, but I enjoy that. And, uh, yeah, a lot of family time of late. So That's awesome. Do yeah. you teach your son how to spit with baseball? <laughs> no. So, like, <laughs> when, uh, ironically, I was a not – I did not enjoy baseball as a kid, and I was a terrible baseball player, which is uh, so sad because my dad's first love in all things is baseball. Exactly. Right? He told me when I was born he saw his varsity baseball player. That's awesome. And he got instead a marching band trumpeter, which is not quite the same, you know. Uh, so uh, anyway, so it's kind of funny that my son is, is enjoying it. He's by no means dedicated. I mean, he's, he's, he's distracted. Not, he's, he's six. Oh, he's yeah, six. Even right, younger, he's six. right? So, yeah, I should teach him to spit, though. He'd enjoy it more if I did. Yeah. Uh, but he's uh, hitting home runs, as he calls them. But it's really just scoring runs. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. So, That's awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. Favorite food? Oh, favorite food, Mexican food. Yeah? Yeah, which is not, you know, that interesting. But, yeah. Favorite yeah. place to travel? Oh, man. Yeah, I don't do much travel, right? But um, I prefer uh, cities over yeah. uh, beach and mountains and all yeah. of that. So big cities. I'm a city boy. Uh, from 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 an early age, I get that from my father. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Greatest advice to parents, because you are one. Yeah, I have. Yeah, well, I need to learn from them before I give them advice. But um, I I've drawn a lot from Hannah's story of Samuel. Uh, Sam, Hannah placing Samuel continually in the hands of God, and so much of parenting, whether successful or filled with failure. Much of parenting to me is a continual handing over my child to the hands of God to allow them, back to Bonhoeffer for a moment, but in his life together, he says the way that we love one another isn't just we bear one another's burdens, but we bear one another's freedom. What he means by that is we bear one another's oddness and particularities, mm -hmm. right? Are the things that make us us that also make us quite weird. And mm -hmm. I think part of the way I hand my child over uh, to God as God's child is to allow them to be the kind of odd, wonderful thing mm -hmm. that God has created them to be and to facilitate God's own growth of the child. Um, that's not much advice, but I find great comfort in Hannah's image of handing over her son to the Lord continually. Well, for those of us who know you and your wife, Amanda, I think you guys do that very well. And I think that you reflect relationship to the father, which is visible in your family. And I think that's where, uh, most of us learn, and we don't even know we learn. And I call it a learned behavior. Mm. You know, my son learned to spit by watching me spit. And <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of things in the world that, that people are learning just by observing and watching someone else. Mm. So, Justin, it's been great to have you on the podcast today. Closing thoughts, closing comments, anything left that you want to share with our listeners? Just that uh, continue to live in the primary identity, as there we all go. are doing. Yeah, We yeah. are the beloved of God. That's enough, always. So. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can they reach you guys? Uh, they can reach me, uh, jwalker at leeuniversity.edu. Um, that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. But, Good deal. Yeah. Good deal. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us today. And be reminded you're made for more. Uh, every time that we do one of these podcasts, I'm so encouraged and uh, realizing that you take time to listen to us and you take time to uh, take to heart what we say. So uh, don't miss what Jay Walker, Justin, or Dr. Walker's comments were today. I think they were relevant and untimely for each of us. So enjoy your Christmas season and have a fantastic um, day. And again, thank you for joining us here on Surfcast. Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.